1: and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for episode number 504, Mr. Bojangles. I'm your host, Bob Ruff.
2: And I'm your co-host, Mike Bussing.
1: In this week's Friday follow-up, we have a lot of ground to cover. In the main episode, episode 504, we covered a lot about Bojangles, but there are still a lot of gaps to be filled in.
2: Yep, that's right, and the listeners have come through and asked the questions to fill in those gaps.
1: All right, well, since we have a lot of ground to cover... We're not going to mess around too much here. We're going to get started. We're going to take a quick break here to hear from one of our sponsors, and we'll get right into your questions.
2: Today's episode is sponsored in part by Harry's Razors. I've been shaving with Harry's for over a year now, and I can't imagine going to another brand of razors. Yeah, me neither, and neither can anyone in my family myself, my wife, my
1: stepson, my stepdaughter, we all use Harry's razors, and everybody absolutely loves them. The only conflict we have around here is fighting over who gets which handle. We've got green handles, blue handles, orange handles, and even the new chrome handle that I got in my holiday gift set. But there's one thing that everyone in my family can agree on, and that Harry's is the closest, best shave any of us have ever had. And at about half the cost of drugstore razors, you've really got nothing to lose here. And one of my favorite parts about Harry's is that they last forever. The blades are of such high quality, you get that close shave even after using it five or six times.
2: You already know that Harry's makes amazing quality products at a super reasonable price. But did you also know that it's a practical gift that your guy will get a lot of use of? Everybody knows
1: that guys are hard to shop for and guilty as charged. I drive my wife crazy when she's trying to figure out what to get me for Christmas or birthdays or anything else. But I guarantee you that a Harry's gift set is a gift that any guy will absolutely love. And you can even personalize it to make it feel special for him. You can choose a color that's right for him. And now they even have the limited edition holiday colors. Harry's has special gift sets that fit his special needs. And they even have a box for guys that already use Harry's. And don't forget, they also have a personal engraving option to let him know that you put a lot of thought into a gift that he's going to love and actually use. Unlike the collection of ties he's got laying on the floor of his closet. In this holiday, Harry's is offering custom and limited edition shaving sets that make perfect gifts. These gift sets were built with your guy in mind, so you know that he's going to love them. The sets come with German-engineered five-blade cartridges that provide close, comfortable shave, foaming shave gel that smells amazing, and a special limited edition winter chrome and emerald green handle that you can even personalize with engraving. No matter what you're looking for, Harry's has got you covered. Sets come ready to gift in a beautifully designed gift box, and gift sets start at just 10 bucks. They make great stocking stuffers. And you can even get something for yourself with Harry's. So here's the deal. Harry's has a special offer just for our listeners. We've partnered with Harry's for a couple of years now, and they want to give you $5 off your order when you go to harrys.com slash justice. Now, this offer is only available for the holidays. This holiday, give Harry's and give Handsome. Get your holiday shopping done early and take advantage of free shipping. To get a limited edition holiday shave set while supplies last, go to harrys.com slash justice right now. That's harrys.com slash justice.
2: All right, let's get started. Sarah wrote to us, The cops are called to investigate suspicious activity at a fast food restaurant, so the responding officer goes through the drive through. Was this officer ever questioned at all about why she didn't write a report or, uh, I don't know, go inside? She was
1: at trial, and she just kind of explained it away as the fact that she just didn't connect the two. And like I said in the main episode, you you gotta consider that there are two sides to this. It's really easy in hindsight to beat up on Regina Meek. And to be honest, she really should have made a report no matter what. But you have to remember, she just gets a call, and a couple of parents say their kids are out wandering the neighborhood and they haven't come home yet. At that point, there's really no alarm bells going off. Certainly no one knows that they've been murdered or are going to be murdered. It's just a couple of kids that didn't come home when they were supposed to. Now, should they have taken it more seriously? Sure. But keep in mind, from Regina Meek's perspective, that's all it is. These kids might just be hanging out at a friend's house or something. Well, then she gets this call to this drive-thru, and the complaint was that there was this man there that was acting suspicious and was in the women's bathroom, and they wanted him to leave, and he wouldn't. Well, when she shows up and they say the guy already left, as far as she was concerned, it was case closed. There was really nothing for her to do. They weren't going to go run DNA testing and all that stuff to try to track down the guy that happened to wander into the bathroom. Now, again, with hindsight, now that we know that there was a murder three quarters of a mile down the bayou, this looks like some glaring incompetence. But keep in mind that at the time, no one knew that was going to happen. So, like I said in the episode, and like I'll say it again now, yes, she should have went in and should have taken a report but that being said, her pulling up to the drive through and the manager telling her the man had already left, I can completely see why someone might say, eh, well, I guess I've got other things to take care of. This guy's already gone.
2: Okay, and then Nina writes, if the perpetrator of the crime had gone to such lengths to cover up the crime scene, would Mr. Bojangles have so carelessly left behind so much evidence in the restroom if he were the guilty party?
1: Well, the two don't really seem to fit. I mean, there's a lot of things that could be happening there. I mean, We have blood loss, there could be traumatic shock, Uh, there's a lot of things that could have happened between when the crime occurred and when Mr. Bojangles wandered into the bathroom, but that being said, it's really hard to reconcile the two. I mean, you have a meticulous offender who meticulously covered up the crime scene and concealed the bodies and all the evidence and almost left nothing behind to be found, and then 30 minutes later or so, you've got the same guy that you know, walks into the women's restroom and sits there and leaves a mess, doesn't clean anything up behind, his blood is all over the place, and doesn't seem to react when he's told that if he doesn't leave, the police are going to be called. Not until the second time after the police actually were called does he get up and just wander away. So yeah, it's really hard to reconcile the two, but we don't know what would have happened in between there either, but I agree that doesn't make a whole lot of sense.
2: And then Kelly says to us, given Mr. Bojangles' state of mind, maybe he witnessed the crime.
1: Several people have brought this up, and it's a possibility, but I think we always come back to that timeline, which I think we're going to get into uh, in more detail here as we move along. But regardless if he witnessed or if he was involved or even if he was a victim, which I think a few people have brought up, you still have to deal with that timeline. Could anyone make that walk in the amount of time allowed, in, in 30 minutes or less? And could they do it without being completely soaked uh, from going in the bayou or the other drainage ditches that feed into the bayou? And in my opinion, it seems really unlikely.
2: Yeah, and there was definitely some discussion, like you just mentioned, of Mr. Bojangles maybe being the fourth victim of the crime.
1: Yeah, I don't think that's completely out of the question, but again, we've got that timeline to deal with.
2: Okay, Pamela writes, did the cops think to check with the ER or local doctors to find out if anyone came in with a bleeding forearm?
1: As far as I know, there's—well, I know there's no record of that ever happening. They could have. I've just never seen any documentation that they did. Personally, I doubt it. I mean, they didn't even bother to actually preserve the evidence or have it tested that they did have. I don't think they really had any interest in Mr. Bojangles. And in this week's episode, you'll see that some other leads came up that I think had them distracted to where they kind of put Mr. Bojangles on the back burner.
2: All right, in an email from Zach, he writes— In the early 90s, there was a crack cocaine epidemic sweeping the nation, with Memphis, Tennessee, seeing a raise in murder rate corresponding with the epidemic, peaking in 1993. Long story short, he says, My belief is that Mr. Bojangles was a junkie in the wrong place at the wrong time. What are your thoughts, Bob? I think that Zach is on to
1: something here, and at the end of the episode, when I walk through, as promised, my theory on Mr. Bojangles, we'll get into that a little bit more but at this point, I'll just say I think I think Zach's real close to hitting this one right on the head.
2: Okay, and then Brady asks, which statements were given at which time by the Bojangles manager? Was the Muddy Shoes version during his testimony and the non-Muddy Shoes version to the police? Was he told to add to his former statement? So the
1: first we hear about Muddy Shoes is at trial. In the original report that was taken on May 6th in that evening, we see nothing about any mud. Remember I said the word mud's not even in that report anywhere. Um, but at trial, he very vividly describes asking the detective or the detectives asking him, did he have mud on his shoes looks like this and pointed to their own feet? And he says, yes. Well, for starters, we don't know what their feet looked like. You know, had they cleaned their, their feet off and just had a little bit of mud on their shoes? Were they completely coated in mud? We don't know. Uh, but it does seem odd that it wasn't even mentioned back in 1993. But then in 94 at the trial, all of a sudden there's all this mud to clean up. As far as was he told to change that, there's no way of knowing that. I would hope not. But and it, and it could be a lot of it could be confirmation bias. You know, he starts seeing things on the news and reading more about what happened. He knows they were found in a muddy ditch bank. And, and maybe he kind of, you know, not even intentionally, but you, can, you tend to kind of fill in gaps with memories and kind of create new memories, but create a new truth. Uh, but, but also keep in mind that if that happened, it wasn't the prosecution that did that. Marty King was a defense witness. The Bojangles man at both trials was presented as an alternate suspect by the defense. So actually adding the mud helped the defense hurt the prosecution. So if that happened, it would have been the defense lawyers and it would have happened in both trials. I think really probably seems unlikely. I mean, he was friends with a bunch of cops. I don't think that, you know, the defense attorneys are going to go tell him to, you know, change his stories to help them out. I think that either it just wasn't significant enough for him to mention back at the original report or he just kind of filled in those gaps and kind of created those memories. And as as time went on, you know, or it could have been that he talked to some of his police buddies and he told them that he was going to be a witness for the defense and maybe they suggested it. But I honestly don't think there's anything nefarious going on here. I think the guy was just trying to do his best to recall things as best as he could. Um, Even the timeline stuff, same thing. You know, it, it hurts the prosecution for his timeline to be moved back. That gives more opportunity, a, a larger window of opportunity. So for him to be wrong about that only helps the defense. It hurts the prosecution. So I really don't see anything nefarious or anything like that going on here. I think the guy just doing his best to remember, and he got a little confused, which
2: happens. All right, Mandy has a question for us. Why on earth was the restaurant manager's first inclination to tell a disoriented, bleeding man to get out? How about call a freaking ambulance?
1: In a way, yeah, it's it's strange and it, it seems a bit heartless. But I think that maybe this goes back to Zach's email where he mentioned the the crack epidemic at the time. And I've done a little bit of research on it, not too much, but it it was a thing. There was a lot of crime in West Memphis, an unusually high crime rate and drug rate. Crack was a big problem. So it very well could be that Mister Bojangles was not the first guy to stumble into that restaurant uh, and even be bleeding or anything else like that. So. You know, it it could be something they were more used to. There was some compassion by Marty King, I guess, uh, in the fact that he gave the guy some time to leave before he called the police. He told him if he doesn't go, he's going to call the police. Gives him a little bit of time. But also keep in mind that when he asked the guy if he was all right, uh, the guy tells him that he's okay. You know, so he and, and there there certainly could have been more to that conversation than we know. But he says specifically the man told him, "I'm okay." So, you know, th- that conversation could have been, you're all right, do you need an ambulance or something? Do you need to go to the hospital? Guy says, I'm okay. He's all right, well, you need to leave. You know, you're a mess and you're in the women's bathroom. Uh, so you know, that could be part of it, too. You know, we only get such a small picture. And it's easy in a lot of these cases, in any of these situations, to pick out tiny little details, which is what we do. It's what we're good at. It's what helps solve crimes. But remember, we're doing this all in hindsight, knowing the rest of the big picture where all Marty King knew was that it's getting close to closing time of the restaurant. There's a woman and a daughter upset because there's some dude in the bathroom. He asked him if he's okay. He
2: says he is, and he's not leaving. So he's like, right, I'm going to get the police here to get him out of there. Gretchen wants to know, why was the women's bathroom in the restaurant cleaned up before police arrived? Well, remember, it, it wasn't. It was cleaned up before the detectives arrived on May 6th.
1: But Marty King had no idea that the police were coming back. He called the police. By the time Regina Meek gets there, the man had left. She comes up to the drive-thru and asks if everything's okay. He says, ah, the guy left. Okay, and she leaves. As far as he knows, the situation's over. The, the police aren't coming back. They've checked it out. The guy's gone. It's time to clean up and get back to business. Again, big picture. We know what was happening. We know the significance, possibly, of the Bojangles man being there. Marty King didn't. Called the police. The police came. The police didn't come inside. Didn't seem to care. The guy was gone, he cleans up. Remember that he cleaned the bathroom between when Regina Meek came and cleared the scene and the next day when Ridge and Alan came back to the restaurant to check it out.
2: Okay, and then Kayla says, What's the harm in testing the evidence from the restaurant, even if they believed that they had the right people in custody? And how is, quote, losing evidence without further explanation any kind of excuse? It's not, and
1: it shouldn't be accepted, and that's why, personally, you know, without sounding all conspiracy theory here, I think there's just no, there's just no flipping way that it just accidentally got lost. I think there was a lot of media pressure on the West Memphis Police Department to solve this case. There's a documentary crew on site that's telling them we're going to make a documentary and put it on friggin' HBO. Everybody's watching. It's making national news. They need to solve the case, and. They had some suspects, and the last thing they wanted was something else to pop up that's going to make them look like maybe they've made a mistake. So, I mean, I'm not going to sit here and accuse them of intentionally losing the evidence, but it's it's pretty damn suspicious that they went through the effort of collecting the evidence that night. Understand that police are human beings too, right? And so they do make mistakes. They do forget things. But on that day, they're in evidence collection mode. They have just spent the entire day at the crime scene collecting forensic evidence and investigating the crime scene. That's all they've been doing all day. They go to this scene, and they find more evidence. They continue to collect it. So how the hell does all of that other evidence manage to stay in? And every piece of evidence they found since then, and just this one particular piece they just misplaced, it makes you wonder if maybe it didn't get misplaced, but it just was kind of put on the back burner and ignored. And then it came time for trial, people started questioning it, and oops, we lost it. But that's just speculation, I don't know. It just seems super odd that the one viable piece of evidence outside of the crime scene they find, they just conveniently, I'll say, lose. And as far as how is it an acceptable excuse that I just lost it, it's not. I mean, I mean, Gitchell, his boss, or even the, the chief of police, should have been on Brian Ridge's ass, and they should have been calling him out, and, and there should have been disciplinary action for, for a mistake that bad. And the fact that, as far as we know, there wasn't any kind of disciplinary action, and they never spoke out about you know, how disappointed they are that he screwed up, to me, again, is an indication that it didn't just accidentally get lost.
2: Nick wants to know if the Bojangles' blood scrapings have ever been relocated.
1: Not as far as I know. I've never seen anything about them being relocated. Someone, a listener I've been talking to about the case that knows the case pretty well, mentioned to me that she thought there was some kind of lost footage from Paradise Lost where Gary Gitchell says that they did find it and test it and there was nothing there. I haven't. I've I've looked at some of the lost footage, everything with Gary Gitchell. I haven't found any evidence of that being true, so I don't know. As far as I know, what's in the official record, no, it was never found.
2: Okay, and Andrew asks, do you think it's possible that Mr. Bojangles was not on foot at all? I always thought of him as a truck driver for some reason.
1: I don't think so. If you look at the YouTube video of the of the, just the Bojangles area, I mean, sure, at the crime scene, you've got a truck stop and a truck wash right there. But for, if he's a truck driver driving a semi, I assume they're talking about, there's nowhere to really put a semi outside of Bojangles. It's a pretty, you know, there's a, a gas station, Bojangles gas station. They could have, I suppose, pulled one apart in the back. But it sounded like Marty King watched this guy walk away because he says he walked out, walked towards the back of the dumpster, turned around, went back out into Missouri Street and started walking down Missouri Street. So he didn't say there was also a big semi back there. And we you know he saw him walk away. Uh, so it's it's possible. But I think, again, if we're talking about Bojangles as a, as a possible suspect that actually was involved in this and he had a vehicle and he was right there in the interstate, in the amount of time it took him to get to the boat jangles, he could have been halfway across Tennessee by then or down to Mississippi. I mean he could have just been
2: gone. So
1: him lingering around the crime scene like that, I just no, I don't think so.
2: Okay, and Aaron writes, what's the timestamp for the call to police from Bojangles? You pushed the estimated timeline back from nine thirty PM to eight thirty PM, but I missed how you got there.
1: Well, that's a good question, Aaron. And to be honest, you didn't miss it. I kind of spaced it when I was recording the episode. I had the timeline in front of me and A lot of you new listeners don't realize this, but I don't script the episodes. I have notes and documents in front of me, and I just speak. And it was my intention to break down the timeline at 5.04 and didn't even realize until we saw this question come through that I never actually did it. I just said that it moved up an hour from the 9.30 timeline. So I guess this is a good time. Why don't I go ahead and break down the police logs now that uh, Aaron so diligently asked the question that I forgot to mention in the episode.
2: I think she did everybody a favor there.
1: And you're sitting over there with a shit-eating grin on your face. Really enjoying this.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I like it when you screw up, Bob.
1: I know you do. I know you do. Okay, so I got the police log in front of me now. And in this police log, and it is, I think the website's up and running. Katie Ross has been working on the website. And I know she sent me the draft of it last night. uh, And it's looking awesome. It's got all the documents loaded onto it. I don't know if she's actually published it yet. Uh, But I would imagine by the time you hear this episode by Friday, matter of fact, I'll make sure. I'll tell her even if it's under construction, there's enough there to get it up. So in the episode 504 case documents, you'll find this police dispatch log. What it is, this is the handwritten log that's made by the dispatcher. And it lists at the top the names of the officers, their call signs. And then below, every single time a call comes in and they radio out to somebody, they document the time they received the call, the time they dispatched it, who took the call, what time they arrived on scene, and what time they cleared the scene. So in this dispatch log, we first have, remember John Mark Byer says about 8 o'clock, 8.10, he called the police and they dispatched Regina Meek. Well, we find in the log he's exactly right. Now, it says here that the call was received at 8.08 and dispatched at 8.08, and she's on scene at 8.08 which leads me to believe that she was already in the neighborhood. And I actually don't have the page before this to see where she was at last, where her previous call was, but she had to been right there because it's within a minute of them dispatching the call that she arrives on the scene. So that call is at 1400 East Barton, and that's a call for missing juvenile Christopher Byers. That is when she went in and took the missing persons report from John Mark Byers. She clears that scene at 829. Now, if you remember back from episode 502, John Mark Byers says that him and his wife, Melissa, talked to Regina Meek, gave her the report. And then as Regina was leaving, Dana Moore walks across the street and says, hey, Michael's missing, too. But what we don't have there is Dana Moore giving an actual missing persons report to Regina Meek, which we'll get into in a future episode. because We have some new information about that, too. But she doesn't file a missing persons report. She just supposedly mentions to Regina Meek that her son is also missing. But I wonder how serious that situation was or how it was presented because of the fact that Meek leaves and doesn't take another report. And we don't have any record of Dana Moore being upset that she didn't do that. And we do eventually have a missing person's report filled out by Dana Moore, but that wasn't until 924, about an hour and a half later. So anyway, 829, Regina Meek clears John Mark Byers' house. After she leaves the Byers' residence, according to her testimony, she starts driving around the neighborhood looking for the boys. So remember, it's 8.29, she leaves, and then at 8.42, she gets another call. This is the Bojangles call. And in the documentation here, it says in the log that the call came in at 8.40. So it's been 11 minutes since she cleared the buyer's house. She's starting to drive around the neighborhood. The call's is dispatched at 8.42. So now it's been 13 minutes. She gets a call, and it says Bojangles, blackmail, towards Delta, which is a gas station, bleeding, White cap, blue shirt, black pants, cast on arm. So that was the information that was put out in the initial dispatch at 8.42. Eight minutes later at 8.50. And keep in mind, that's about how long it takes to drive from the neighborhood to the Bojangles. About eight minutes. Eight minutes later, Regina Meek arrives on scene. That's when she drives around to the drive-thru window, talks to Marty King through the window. He says he's gone. She clears that scene at 9 o'clock. So that's what I meant by we had to move the timeline up an hour. Marty King says he thought this all occurred at about 9.30, but we see that he called the police at 8.40. So I had said in the episode that conservatively, we can say that the Bojangles man didn't arrive on the scene until 8.30. And I said that because no one saw him come in. So after he's in there for some unknown period of time, the woman and her daughter go into the bathroom. And so we can also presume that they had just gotten there and the man was already there before they even arrived and in the bathroom. They go into the bathroom, they see the man, they come back out, they tell Marty King about it. He says that he goes in, talks to the guy, asks if he's okay, tells him he needs to get out of here, or he's going to call the police, says he gives him some time, and then goes back to check on him. He's still there and says, okay, I'm calling the police now. Now, we do have some new information on that. When I was doing a little more research uh, since Sunday, uh, we were estimating in episode 504 that 10 minutes is probably the tightest amount of time for all those things to occur. And that's because Marty King didn't give an exact amount of time between when he gave him the warning, when he went back, and then called the police. But since then, and I had been working off of Marty King's testimony at the second trial of the, the three that were convicted. There were two separate trials. I went back to the testimony at the first trial. And in that one, he does say specifically that after he went in and warned the guy to leave or he was going to call the police, he says he gave him 15 to 20 minutes before he went back and then called the police. So knowing that, now our window of opportunity just shrunk even more. So he calls the police at 8.40. Let's go back 15 or 20 minutes. We'll say 15 to be safe. That brings us 8.25 from his first contact. Prior to that, the woman came in, went into the bathroom, tells him, so we can maybe add a couple of minutes there. Now we're looking at 8.20, 8.21. And then we have the fact that he was already there when the woman and her daughter came into the restaurant. So we don't know how long that was. So I'm going to say conservatively at this point, at the very earliest that the Bojangles man got there, we're looking at 8.15, which now puts us back, if we're saying a 30-minute trek down the bayou, which I still think is impossible, now we're looking at him leaving the crime scene by 7.45. Remember, he said 15 to 20 minutes. You push that out to 20 minutes. Now we're looking at 7.40, he's leaving the crime scene. So our window of opportunity just keeps getting smaller and smaller and smaller. But now getting back to the dispatch log, so she clears the Bojangles at 9 o'clock. At the moment she leaves, at 9, she gets another call, which may explain why she didn't go in. So she's at the drive-thru window. She gets there at 8.50. She's talking to Marty King. He's telling her that the guy already left. She's getting some information from him. At 9.01, she gets dispatched to another call. This one is at 1004 Roy Pugh Drive, which, by the way, is back in the neighborhood she just came from, the neighborhood where the boys are missing, for someone whose house had been egged. So she gets to Bojangles at 8.50. At 9 o'clock, she clears. 9.01, she gets a call to go check out this egg on a house. She gets on that scene at 9.04. She clears at 9.18. Now, it's six minutes after this, which is not in the dispatch log, but it's in the report. Six minutes after this is when she finally takes the missing person report from Dana Moore. Now, as we go on breaking down the dispatch log, we also have another question answered here. So remember when we played the interview from 2007 with Terry Hobbs, he said that he wasn't sure who ever called the police and reported Stevie Branch missing. He says that if you remember correctly, he went to Catfish Island, the place where Pamela worked, picks up Pam Hobbs, and he says somebody went to the payphone and called, and he thinks maybe it was him. Well, interestingly here in the dispatch log, We show a call received at 9.19, which is consistent with when he picked Pam up from work, and a dispatch at 9.21, and this is Officer Moore. He goes to Catfish Island, and what's odd here is the line says, Terry Hobbs, missing juvenile. Officer Moore arrives on scene at 9.26. He's there for 20 minutes, and he clears at 9.46. But this is what's odd. When you look, and you'll see this when you go to the website and look at the dispatch log, Oftentimes, the dispatcher would write information in and then add information in tiny letters up above it. Now, in this particular instance, in this log, it says Catfish Island written in big letters that fill up the whole line. And then Terry Hobbs is written in tiny letters at the top of the line with the area underneath it blank. And then after that, we have a missing juvenile that's back down on the bottom line. What I'm getting at here, again, without sounding too conspiracy theory, There's no reason for his name to be written in tiny letters on the top unless something was written underneath it that's been whited out. There's nothing crossed out under it. There's just a blank space under Terry Hobbs' name. I'm telling you this because it gets more interesting when we find out the actual missing persons report was filled out by none other than Pam Hobbs, not Terry Hobbs. So we have the dispatch log that says they were dispatched to Catfish Island. Something's whited out. Above it, it says Terry Hobbs and then missing juvenile. But then the missing persons report was actually filled out by Pam Hobbs. Just food for thought. And We also now know because of this log exactly when Officer Moore showed up in the neighborhood to help search for the boys. Remember, John Mark Byers said that he was searching with Officer Moore. According to this log, after taking this report from the Hobbs, Officer Moore arrived on the crime scene at 942. So he leaves the Hobbs, goes to the crime scene, and starts looking for the three boys. So that's everything we have from the dispatch log. Sorry I left that out of the main episode, uh, and I know there's a lot to digest there, but to getting back to the actual question when I said why we moved it back, that's why, because Marty King says the incident occurred around 9.30, but we know from the dispatch logs that he actually called the police at 8.40. We know from his testimony that he left the man sitting in there for 15 to 20 minutes, He was already there when the woman comes in. Woman finds him, tells Marty King. He gives him the warning, waits 15 to 20 minutes, goes back, then calls police. So now we're putting the Bojangles man arriving at Bojangles no later than 8.15. Thanks
2: for clearing that up, Bob.
0: That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over a hundred casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. All
2: right. Michael writes from the South bank of the Bayou. Could Mr. Bojangles have hugged the Bayou and not actually have been in it and still gotten there in a half an hour?
1: Well, here's the problem. I don't think he would have been on the south bank of the bayou. Remember, the crime scene is north of the bayou, uh, in the Blue Beacon Woods or the area known as Turtle Hill. Uh, and so if he was on the south end of the bayou, that would mean that while trying to conceal himself, he's going to cross the pipe, which he would have had to have gone to the pipe to dispose of the bikes in the in the bayou. But then instead of staying on the secluded north side, he crosses the pipe, goes to the south side, climbs back up that hill, and is standing there literally 50 feet from an occupied home and less than 100 feet from an occupied apartment building. And then as he would walk west, he would walk right past two apartment buildings with all of those units facing right exactly where he was walking. So I think if he's going, if he is walking on the bank and not getting wet, he's going to be on the north side of the bayou. So so I guess I'll answer as far as that perspective goes. So if he's on the north side of the bayou, that would be between the Blue Beacon truck wash and the truck stop in the bayou. I mean, he's going to be in clear sight of the apartment buildings as he's walking, but only if somebody's looking. But there are a few hairy spots for Mr. Bojangles if he's trying to stay dry and walk on the north side of the bayou. The first one we come to before you ever get to 7th Street is another drainage washout ditch that comes into the bayou from the north. And it goes all the way up to the highway, so there's no way around it. If he's going to continue west, he's going to have to go down into that ditch, into the water, back up the ditch to continue walking. So there's place one he's got to get wet. But so then after he gets down and up out of that ditch, he goes west. Then he's coming to 7th Street. And, Mike, you and I have been to that area. You know, or the hotel was right around the corner, and we drove that, I don't know, what, a thousand times? Oh, yeah, definitely. Back and forth to the crime scene. And that's a busy road. I mean, a lot of times you're sitting there, especially once, you know, after 5 o'clock when work lets out, we sit there for 10 minutes sometimes just waiting for a chance to get out and turn left into traffic. So it's a very busy road. He comes up to 7th Street. Now, if he went through all of this for the sole intent and purpose of keeping himself concealed and distancing himself from the crime scene, well, the last thing he wants to do is stumble his wet, muddy, bleeding ass across 7th Street with all the traffic there. So, again, there's so many different ways he can go. But in this theory, for him to fit, he's following the bayou. So he gets there. There's only one way to avoid detection there. Where there's street lights everywhere, it is dark out, but there's street lights everywhere. There's cars everywhere, and that's to go under Seventh Street, under the bridge. And with the water level where it was then, you're getting wet. There's no, it, it, there's not a a big space under the bridge. You're gonna have to go right down in the bayou, and with the depth and the of the water back then, he would have been neck deep or even over his head or swimming to get under that bridge. Uh, so that's a big problem because. One thing that was definitely not described was the man being completely drenched from going underneath there. But let's say somehow he gets past 7th Street. we got another problem. We run into another drainage ditch that comes in from the north that he's got to go down into and back up. And then once he gets past that, then it's pretty smooth sailing. If he's on the north side, it's just open field back in there. Uh, He could actually get out away from the bank, away from the weeds and stuff, and have a pretty clear path to walk for a little while. But then he gets to Bojangles, which, again, you got to wonder, why did he decide to turn into Bojangles? You can't even see it from that side of the bayou. But if he just knew it was there or just decided, I'm going to get out onto Missouri Street now, which is, again, odd because if he just followed it for another 300 yards, it actually crosses Missouri Street. So he could have just walked right out to the road. But instead, he decides to cross into the Bojangles, and that means now he does. Remember, he's on the north side of the bayou. The only way to get to Bojangles is to go back into the bayou and back out of it. So this is the main bayou, the six, seven-foot deep, muddy, 20-foot wide bayou that he would have to go down into, through, and back out of. Then get up, go into some woods, then cross the railroad tracks, then go through some really nasty briars and stuff and go down into yet another ditch, go through that water, come back out, and then go to the Bojangles. So you're right, if he was on the south side, it would have been an easier path of travel because he wouldn't have had to go back into the ditch at any point. He wouldn't have to have to cross back over it. But again, him being on the south side just doesn't make sense because he d- he would be walking up right in clear view of two apartment buildings and a house. So So that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But he, let's say even he did that. Let's say if he did it, you still run into the same problems because there's also two ditches that come into the bayou from the south. Uh, one for sure, maybe two. I can't remember off the top of my head. But there, you have another ditch he's going to have to go in and out of. You still have the 7th Street Bridge issue. And then again, once you get to the Bojangles, now you don't have to cross over the main bayou if you're on the south side, which then becomes the west side once it turns north. But you still got to go back through that other ditch before you get into the parking lot. So anyway, you shake it, Mr. Bojangles, if he follows the bayou, he's getting wet and real wet.
2: Kim says, in hearing the size and proximity of the wooded area, how likely is it that no one would hear the three boys screaming? How loud is the stream? Anything else that would mask the screams or yells? Is there any evidence of gagging? There's no evidence of
1: gagging. Uh, The stream's not all that loud because, remember, it's very deep and very wide. The biggest thing that would drown out sound would be the highway. The interstate is right there. So that's definitely going to drown out some sound. All that being said, we've ran some tests at the crime scene and if you're standing at the house there at the end of the dead end and someone is off in those woods and they holler, you hear it. Now, I guess we were listening for it, but I mean it's that if you, again, if you watch the YouTube video, you see how close. I think most people still if you haven't watched our YouTube video or checked out the aerial images of the crime scene, you just don't comprehend how close the bodies were found compared to the house right at the dead end of West McCauley. I mean, we're talking about, again, I literally threw a rock from the end of that driveway to the discovery site. It's that close.
2: Grace wants to know, why did you say the boys were killed in between 7 and 8 p.m.? Did the autopsy outline a time of death? It didn't, and uh, that's an estimate, but that's based on the totality of
1: the evidence that we have. So a big part of that is the sightings we have. We've got a few sightings of the boys between six thirty and seven o'clock. The last sighting we have is Chris Wall saying that around seven, he saw them heading into the woods. So that's why we have seven o'clock on the back end of that, because they were seen alive by several people. And there's some conflicting accounts. And like I mentioned, at some point we're going to get into the credibility of all of those statements. We have so much to cover, so we're just moving past it for now. But we have several different sightings of the boys between six thirty and seven. So that's why seven's on the front end. Now on the back end, I say 8 o'clock because 8 o'clock is when it gets dark. And even though Civil Twilight, you know, the sunset at 7.50, typically it's going to be dark 20 to 30 minutes after sunset. But down deep in that ditch with the tree canopy, by 8 o'clock it's going to be dark. And I know that from being an outdoorsman and a hunter and being in thick woods and the difference between thick woods and being out in a field. It's dark there by 8 o'clock. And I also know that the mosquitoes are just unbearable by the time it gets dark. Like, like immediately when it gets dark, they're unbearable. And, and the boys didn't have any mosquito bites on them, uh, according to the autopsy report and ME's report. So if they had been there and alive, especially nude, any time after 8 o'clock, they would have had a 1,000 mosquito bites on them. And since they don't, it's my opinion, and this is my opinion, I think they were already put into the water. By the time it got dark out, by the time eight o'clock rolled around, I think they're in the water. Uh, then you also have the fact that you have people looking. And again, the proximity to the crime scene you've got right there. At the You got the Mayfair apartments. We're talking, you know, after dinnertime, evening, people are outside. It's a nice evening in the spring to be in those woods, concealing the crime scene anytime after dark. First of all, I think would have been impossible. That's another part of it. I mean, we're talking pitch black and this was meticulously cleaned. Meticulously, including the banks being wiped down, and I know I think somebody had asked on social media, it was they asked if they used the bikes to wipe it down, and and I don't I don't quite understand what they were asking there, but basically it looks like they took water in their hands, or maybe they even used the clothes and wiped the bank. So there were there were obviously all this activity, there were footprints all over the muddy banks of this creek, and it was wiped smooth. They were all wiped away, other than that one partial print that was left in the mud. So for all that to happen, first of all, if somebody had a flashlight in there, everybody looking for the kids would have seen the flashlight in there. Nobody did. And also, again, in my opinion, this wasn't a premeditated murder. I think it was something that happened in the spur of the moment. And the offender or offenders quickly decided to try to conceal it and get out of there. I don't think they they have a flashlight with them when this is happening. It all comes down to that. The, the 7 o'clock hour is because they were seen alive before that. The 8 o'clock hour is because of lack of mosquito bites. The fact that proximity to homes after it was dark, there was no way anybody could have concealed that crime scene in pitch darkness. And there's no evidence anyone had a flashlight in there. So that's for me why I have narrowed that window down that the entire thing from attack to uh, body concealment to egress from the crime scene by the perpetrator, I think that that all happened between seven and eight. And I think that the bikes being thrown into the bayou probably likely happened right about eight o'clock. I think that that is when it would be dark enough for
2: someone to sneak out and drop those bikes into the bayou and then get out of there. Claire writes, I wonder if the boys may have been killed somewhere else and then their bodies put in the water there. It could explain why they were tied up to enable them to be carried easily. This is,
1: I'm not going to discredit this theory because it's something that a lot of people have brought up. There's a lot of Theories out there online about people saying that it was a secondary crime scene that the bodies were transported there. My personal opinion, this is just my opinion. I just don't think so. Again, you have them going, they're seen going towards those woods. It's known they were playing in the Robin Hood Woods, which is just south of the bayou earlier that day. Their bikes are found right there at the pipe, indicating that they had taken their bikes to the pipe right there by the woods. You also have people all over the place looking for the kids from, you know, John Mark Byers starts looking at 630. And so there's people around looking for them all around that area. The, the search was focused in the Robin Hood woods, which was just 100 yards away, in some cases less than 100 feet away. So for someone to, ch- if they were going to dispose of the body, you do that because you're trying to distance the bodies from where they would be expected to be found. So Say they weren't killed. The would say they were killed in someone's house there in the neighborhood. I don't think you then take the bodies right there, a hundred feet away from the neighborhood where everyone's looking and dump them there. I would expect them to be taken down and dumped. You know, the Mississippi River. You have to realize is five miles from here. You know, there's there's plenty of places where they could go dump them in the Mississippi River, and they would have washed down and been found somewhere down in Louisiana. But that didn't happen. They were found right there. So it just there's some. Evidence, as far as some theories people have uh that maybe this was a secondary crime scene, I think it's kind of a stretch, but man, really, in just my opinion, it just seems so unlikely that that happened, and then also you have the bindings, there's no evidence first of all, nobody's carrying anybody by shoestrings they'd break they're not made for that uh and then again, as far as moving them with all this stuff going on, people searching, they're doing this with three different bodies, and if that's the case, why take the clothes there too? You know, So if they're tied up somewhere else, they clearly were tied up after their clothes were already removed. So if you're taking the bodies there to put them into the creek that a lot of people didn't even know was there because it's in the woods, why make the extra trips to take the clothing there, too, when you could throw the clothing in a dumpster or something? It just it doesn't, in my opinion, no. There's That was, I believe, the boys were killed within a few feet of where they were found.
2: Okay, and speaking of the clothes the boys were wearing— Chris wants to know, is there any reason it's impossible the boys already had their clothes and shoes off and were playing in the water before they were killed? There's no reason that it's impossible,
1: but there's several reasons why it's improbable. Based on the witness reports, remember we have Bobby Posey saying that Chris says he's running away. We have all three boys seen down by the Hobbs neighborhood by the Jamie Clark Ballard where they're being hollered at to come home. Stevie Branch sure as hell knows that he was supposed to be home hours ago. And according to Jamie Clark Ballard's statement, his stepdad is yelling at him to get back there, and they take off. So I feel like they were on a mission. I think that it, that that the evidence would support from the witness statements we have, if they're credible, that they were on a mission to get out of the area. They were they were running away from something, even to hide or whatever, when they went down into those woods, and, and so. That tells me they weren't going there just to go play. And then also you have the fact that according to Weather Underground, the high that day was 73 and the low was 59. So it was never a hot day where you just need to cool off. By sunset, I would expect that the temperature was most certainly into probably the mid-60s. And the sun sets 50 minutes after they went into the woods. Also, this water... If you look at the the what's available on our website and online of the bayou then this isn't and, and I know kids will play in some muddy water but this water's nasty. It was just like I said, I've described it many times like chocolate milk mixed with mud. It's just dirty nasty water. It's going to be almost dark. It's not going to be warm out. I mean it's it, you know it'll be mild in the mid 60s and, and with the boys all knowing their you know, Chris is already in trouble. Got his butt whooped and took off said he's running away. Stevie knows he's in trouble. Uh, we don't know about Michael Moore. It seems like he was the only one that really wasn't in trouble at that point. But to decide, you know what, now that it's almost dark and it's cold and our parents are looking for us and we're in trouble, let's go ahead and get naked and go skinny dipping. I don't think so. I, I don't think that makes much sense at all. I think that they were likely knocked unconscious. And then as part of the, the I think the bindings were, were simply part of concealment.
2: Okay, because there was some discussion, uh, specifically from listener Jan, stating that maybe the attackers saved work by having the boys tie each other up.
1: Yeah, I, I don't, I don't buy that either. the The knots were all too consistent. Not just the knots, but the bindings were all way too consistent. And for, for those of you parents out there, uh, I'm trying to remember when my oldest was eight, but I know I've got a seven year old right now, and still struggling tying his shoe. So to to have three eight-year-olds that consistently tie bindings that are going to work and do them all in the same fashion with the same type of knots uh, just doesn't make a lot of sense. And again, I mean, you got to remember these these injuries they had. And when you combine that with the window of opportunity with concealment, I think it all had to happen way faster than that. I think it had to happen much, much faster. I think they had to been unconscious quick and put into that water relatively quickly in order for the offender or offenders to have time to
0: conceal the crime scene. No purchase necessary. were prohibited by law. 18 plus
2: terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, and one last question regarding tying the boys up. Charles writes, why undress the boys and tie them up? Surely the simplest way would be just to sink the dress bodies. If the sneakers were still on, they wouldn't have floated up. Also, I guess it would have been quicker, too.
1: This is one of the reasons why I think we're looking at a patient, cunning offender or offenders. Uh, Because in that area, so if you put them in there with their clothes on, remember... This was a narrow, shallow ditch where they were where they were put. As a matter of fact, most places in that creek, their bodies would have showed above the surface of the water. They were kind of in, in a couple of depressions is where they were put. And the water is, you know, two and a half feet deep. I mean, they're they're barely under the surface of the water. So first of all, I think the bindings were put on them in order to try to keep their arms and legs from flailing above the surface. Also, if you leave shoes on their feet, they have rubber on them. They're more likely to float up. There may have been a couple of different attempts. They might have been put in the water first and drowned and realized that it just wasn't working, took them out and undressed them. But to be honest, I think that they were undressed for one purpose and one purpose only, and that was to leave access for animal predation. I don't think this was an attempt at temporary concealment. I believe this was an attempt at permanent concealment of these bodies with the best option at hand. You know, with a truck wash and the service road and the interstate and the neighborhood, whoever did this couldn't carry the bodies out of there and go dump them in the Mississippi River. They had to deal with what they had at hand and all they had was that little creek and it's known that there's a lot of turtles in the area. There's any little patch of woods like that, you're going to have raccoons, I don't know, in that area maybe coyotes, different critters even even insects that would and I'm sorry, this is this is upsetting to even think about, but I, I just I, I believe that this has a lot to do with the killer being cunning enough to know that if they are are left undiscovered in that creek nude long enough, that animals of one kind or another will eventually chew their meat off of them down to the bone, and likely the bones then drift away into the mud and they're never found. And and in my opinion, that's what makes the most sense about them being undressed, given the fact that there's no evidence whatsoever of sexual assault. The only thing that makes sense to me was it was part of body concealment. You have, number one, trying to make the packages smaller so they stay under the water, trying to avoid them floating to the surface like the shoe eventually did. And I think that it was, you know, leaving the bodies almost as bait for different types of animals to get in there and uh, destroy the evidence.
2: Okay, RJ wants to know, how did the boys in the West Memphis Three actually die? Drowning, suffocation, blunt force trauma. And also, how were they stuck underwater? Just pushed into the mud and hope they didn't float up? Use of a stick? Uh, as far as the last question is concerned, to be honest, I'm not
1: real sure. I haven't seen any documentation that specifically describes how they were secured into the water. It's always been my assumption that sticks were used, like they used with the clothing, maybe in connection with the bindings to hold them, you know, to jam them down into the mud. A body uh, will sink after death, after drowning especially, uh, for a period of time. But then eventually, once the, and this is part of just the decomposition of of a body, your internal organs begin to release gases. And that's why when someone drowns in any body of water, eventually they float. And then once those gases dissipate, they'll then sink again. But with the current, I, I have to believe somehow they were wedged down into the water as far as the cause of death, it's drowning. It, it was specifically stated by Dr. Peretti with Michael and Stevie as drowning. Uh, with Christopher Byers, it was documented as multiple injuries, but it was noted that there was water and uh, red vomitus in his airway, the same as the other two boys. And years later, when Dr. Warner Spitz reevaluated the autopsies and reviewed the photos and results, it was his determination that it was also drowning. Now, that being said, they drown because they were put into the water before their head injuries killed them. All of them had head injuries that would have killed them. All three boys had fractured skulls and brain hemorrhages. And so they were killed by drowning, but they would have died anyway. And again, this is graphic, and if you, if you don't want to hear this, scoot forward a couple of minutes. But it's important to know as far as the killer uh, or killers, when they're they're doing the drowning and the bindings and all this is going down, I have had the unfortunate experience with 16 years as a fireman to be witness to many people who have had very similar head injuries. And it is not a pretty sight. A fractured skull and brain hemorrhaging like this, what you'll have is victims on the ground, seizing, spitting up blood some of the time, coughing, gasping for breath. it's, It's not a pretty sight. It's not a quick death. And so I think that after the blows to the head, the killer saw this and, and people have said, well, maybe he didn't know or, or they didn't know that the boys uh, were still alive. I'm going to say that's not likely uh, just just with head injuries like that. Typically, it's pretty it's a it's a violent, gross situation uh, when you have injuries like this. So they would have died from those injuries, but they were drowned before they did. And also, that's there have been a few people that have pointed out that it looks like the bindings on one or two of the boys, uh, specifically Christopher Byers, I think, that it looks like he was bound before he was dead and the others were post-mortem because there was evidence of struggle in his bindings. And 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 I'm working off the top of my head here, so that I may have the boys mixed up. But one of the boys, uh, there was evidence of ligature and struggling perimortem before death on one of the boys that I think was Christopher Byers. And I would go back to what I just said. If any of the boys had received the types of injuries that I'm describing uh, and they were tied up and they were completely subdued with brain injuries like that, uh, the seizures that they would have been experiencing prior to death uh, would have caused those ligature marks as well.
2: Okay, and Auntie wants to know, do the books and documentaries on the West Memphis Three influence your investigation?
1: No, not at all. Uh, I mean, I've I've watched them all, and that's uh, like most of you or a lot of you, that what got me interested in the case, but no, I just, and that's not to say anything negative about him at all, but I know how Hollywood works, and I know how productions and editing like that work, I know there's always an, an agenda, and a good documentarian will is good at making you believe what he wants you to believe at the end of it, but aside from all that, just like any case, I don't take anything anybody tells me at their word. All I care about is what I can prove, what's documented in police reports and interviews and the own interviews that I conduct. That's what's driving the investigation. And that's where we're, we're at right now. Uh, you know, we're We're tracking along through this investigation chronologically as I would have investigated it as I am investigating it from the very beginning. And that's why there's a few names that a lot of you keep wanting to talk about that I haven't brought up yet. And that's because they're not a part of this investigation yet. And so no, the documentaries don't influence any of that at all. And actually, real quick while we're on that topic, I want to talk about discussion on the Facebook page and on the fan page. I'm going to ask and I'm going to ask the moderators and the, and the admins on the fan page to start uh, enforcing this. There are a lot of people that either don't know anything or know very little about this case that are trying to have discussions about each episode based on what was presented in that episode. And there are clearly some people on both sides, innocence and guilt, that have agendas and really want to boast how much they know about the case that they've read about it for years. What I'm going to ask is anybody that wants to talk about anything other than what was covered in a particular episode, don't comment on that episode thread. Or if somebody posts a specific question, don't go into that with, This is what happened at trial, and this is what happened here, and and did you know this, 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 and this? It's completely muddying the waters, confusing the issue, and discouraging people from having a conversation. Somebody asks question A, and they get XYZ thrown at them. So if you want to present your thoughts and ideas about something other than what's been covered so far, create your own thread. And from this point forward, I on the main page, well, me and Mike, and uh, the moderators and admins on the fan page, If you are jumping on people who are just trying to have a discussion about what happened uh, by starting arguments about stuff that hasn't been covered yet, the comments will be deleted. Repeat offenders will be blocked and banned from the pages. And I'm not saying that because I want to limit any discussion that's happening. I love the discussion, and I'm fine with the back and forth and the different sides. Uh, But like I said before, you need to be courteous about it. Don't be calling people names. And you got to stop hijacking the threads that are there because there are people that are messaging us saying, listen, I want to get into this and talk about the case and talk about the episode. And every time I say anything, one of three or four people jump all over me and start talking to me about stuff that I don't even know what they're talking about yet. So keep that in their own thread. You're welcome to do that. You're welcome to have those discussions. But when we put the posts up or people put discussions up about a specific question or episode, let's keep the topic contained to that uh, just for clarity's sake and for the message boards to be more inviting to people who want to have a conversation.
2: Okay, Thomas on Twitter mentioned that when you interviewed Jim Clemente about the Heyman Lee case, he said concealment of a body tends to indicate a known relationship to the victim. Could that be true in this case?
1: Yeah, and there's been a little bit of discussion on profile, and we're going to get into all that later in detail. Uh, but yeah, when, I've interviewed Jim on a couple of our cases, who's, uh, for those of you who don't know him, he's a very world-renowned former FBI behavior analyst or profiler. And yeah, he said that you know that, that when somebody goes to great lengths to conceal a body, typically it indicates a known personal relationship to the offender. Now, that's that doesn't mean every time. That's just typically that's a reason for that behavior because it's someone who, if the body is found, people are immediately going to look it to them and say, you're a suspect. So it's not like they just need to delay things. They need to completely avoid the body ever being found they're much better off with this being a long-term missing persons case than having bodies that may point back to them. And there's been more discussed. There was a guy named Fred Walsh on the the fan page made a comparison about this. He said he listened to several of Jim Clemente's Real Crime Profile episodes about this case where he said that, you know, the, the body concealment would indicate a known personal relationship. And then in the Meredith Kircher case, which is known to most as the Amanda Knox case, he said in that case, Jim said that this was probably... A random attack, and so hes he he had said that there was like flawed logic there, like and he said that in the Kircher case that you know, she had a duvet thrown over her, and her bedroom door was locked and so that's the same thing as concealment, so why does that equal a random attacker, but this concealment equals no personal relationship and he had said there was a little bit of a thread about it on the the fan page, a little bit of a thread there where he was talking about that it was contradictory, but it's not uh it, there's very different things, so in this case, there was a clear attempt at permanent body concealment, it, and it went to great efforts. In fact, many people walked right by the three boys in this case and, and didn't notice them. They almost got away with it. They almost weren't found. Now, in the Meredith Kircher case, is a very different scenario. Uh, she was brutally killed, raped throat slash blood everywhere, and there was yeah, a little duvet, whatever duvet is, was thrown over the top of her, and her bedroom door was locked. She had roommates. Clearly, this was not an attempt at permanent concealment. Uh, This is what we would call an attempt at delayed concealment or trying to delay discovery. And it does tell you something different about the offender. What that tells you is that someone that feels that if they can just have time to get away before the body was found, then they would be safe. That's why Jim Clemente said that was likely a, a random attacker. Because, you know, if that was like the boyfriend of this girl... Of course, they're going to look at him. But if some random person comes in, rapes her, and kills her, and makes this huge bloody mess, just by locking the door, you figure, do you think about it? A roommate comes home, you come home to your house, and your roommate's door's shut and locked. You knock, they're not answering, it's locked. And they like, all right, well, they're sleeping. And you're going to leave them alone, at least for a while, before you decide to kick the door in, uh, which is exactly what happened here. Uh, and, and that is an attempt, that that gives someone time to create distance between them and the crime scene. That is very different, not even close to the permanent, the attempt at permanent concealment we see in this case. So, you know, I don't want to get too deeply into profiling. We'll, we'll get into all that later. Uh, some people think it's great. Some people hate it. That's fine. That's a discussion for another day. But I did want to point out with those those couple of posts we've had uh, regarding the profile, and Jim Clemente specifically, uh, that Jim Clemente did not contradict himself between the two. Those two crime scenes were
2: nothing alike. And then last, Bob, you promised the listeners that you would give your theory on the Bojangles man. So, what do you think all this is about? What do you think happened? It's
1: just a theory or a hypothesis, but in my opinion, when we gather all the evidence, I certainly don't think that our window of opportunity is going to allow for Bojangles man to be involved in the murders. It just, it, like, now we have cut down the time of travel from the crime scene to the Bojangles to less than 15 minutes. It's impossible. Uh, and then, and then making that trek without being completely soaked with water also impossible. The the way he was acting, especially the, the defecating on himself and slurring his speech and bleeding. In my opinion, this is I think I think Zach Weaver uh, who <laughs> sent that email and it's a uh, fun fact also is uh, my tattoo artist. Zach Weaver. Yeah, he's uh,
2: supposed to do a sleeve on you soon, isn't he? Yeah,
1: yeah. Zach had mentioned there was a serious crack epidemic, and this type of behavior. If you've never seen someone that was on crack is pretty typical I've had the unfortunate experience again with 16 years in the fire service of coming across some people that were high on crack and it's slurring i've seen drooling just just really really odd behavior uh the defecating in the pants I've seen that uh from crack addicts uh, also there's a liquor store not far from the crime scene and then also we have the 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 blood there's no blood trail leading into the restaurant uh just blood in the restaurant so I think what you got here is a a, a dude that's either real drunk or high on crack or both that had to go to the bathroom and just stumbled into the closest place he could find. And, Mike, you remember when we were there on the south side of that parking lot, which was between the open field. There's an open field there and then the liquor store. There's another ditch right there. Not nearly as deep. It's only it's a small little drainage ditch. But it's a it's a real good place to get your feet muddy and possibly trip and cut yourself. Uh, I think that that likely, given the fact there's no blood trail leaving or leading into the restaurant, I think that um, you got a drunk or high guy that had to go to the bathroom and stumbled his way in there and um, probably cut his arm real close to the restaurant, if not cut it in there. Maybe he fell on his way to the restroom uh, or or, or, or he's trying to sit down or whatever. Clearly, he's disoriented, goes into the wrong bathroom. And then, and then he just wanders out of there. But I think everything, and this is my opinion, it's a hypothesis, but in my opinion, when you factor all of the evidence in, the timeline, the amount of water that would have been on him, the blood, the fact that he would have had to commit these crimes with one arm and a cast, I think that the Bojangles man is just one of the great big red herrings in this case, and and you just got a guy that's uh, that's having a bad day happened to stumble into a restaurant that was a mile away from a horrible crime scene
2: okay that's going to do it for today's follow-up thank you everybody for engaging and sending in your thoughts and your theories
1: and make sure you tune in this sunday two days from today for episode 505 where we're going to be addressing yet another one of the early leads for the west memphis police department in the search for the killers of the forgotten west memphis three truth and justice a production of nbi studios mike bussing is our executive producer all music for the show was created by put them in a song.com i want to thank amanda meyer for creating our friday follow-up logo thank you to our transcription team sarah mueller anna dindorf stephanie mcconnell and britta bliss and also thank you to chris brinkley for all the work he's done in the past on our website and a big thank you to katie ross who has taken over that task and it is a big task in creating and then going forward managing and maintaining our website truthandjusticepod.com thank you katie and as always thank you to all of you for all your engagement support i mean we have had a ton of content in these friday follow-up episodes Uh, lots of engagement lots of questions lots of comments thank you all for all of your support and let's all keep putting our heads together and let's try to reach out and find the people that know something about this case you can send us emails at theories at truthandjusticepod.com you can send us voicemails to 269-224-2833. You can like our Facebook page. You can get in the conversation in the Truth and Justice podcast fans page. Or you can follow us on Twitter at Truth Justice Pod. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice.